and welcome to this very special edition of Spoiler. In this episode, we're taking a break from our usual business of spoiling movies, books and TV shows and instead handing the show over to our resident music fanatic, Rachel Burnett, who's been taking a closer look at the work of movie and TV composers. For regular listeners of Spoiler, it'll come as no surprise that I have a huge passion for film and television score. If I can crowbar a mention of the score into a show, I will even if it's right at the very end. And the music. Sorry, the soundtrack's amazing. <laughs> oh, no, wow. We nearly got I had to get it in. <laughs> Stephen Rennix is a genius. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's out of genuine interest in the subject or just a desperate attempt to shut me up, but the rest of the spoiler team have agreed to let me have a whole show devoted just to score. Cue much whooping and listening to clips of Thomas Newman and James Newton Howard. I've been lucky enough to secure phone interviews with three fantastic composers. Stephen Rennix. Certainly film composers don't hang out together. You know, I rarely meet somebody else who does it. Stephen regularly collaborates with director Lenny Abramson and composed the amazing soundtrack for 2014 comedy drama Frank and 2015's Room. Debbie Wiseman. Actually, to work without the picture for a while and just, just concentrate solely on the music, I find really, really inspiring. Debbie is current composer in residence at Classic FM and composer of the score for the internationally acclaimed TV series Wolf Hall. And Deborah Lurie. That was a nice phone call back to the parents. Be like, guess yeah. what I'm doing? <laughs> Deborah composed the scores for An Unfinished Life, starring Robert Redford and Morgan Freeman, and the romantic thriller Safe Haven. However, in chatting at length to them all, it's become clear that to try and fit a lifelong love affair with score, as well as three interviews with these fascinating people, into an hour-long special isn't going to happen. So, the score special has morphed into a composer special. And so it should. Much like many of the backstage crew on films and TV productions, score composers are only really noted when they do their job badly or exceptionally award-winningly well. How many times have you been watching a film and been utterly distracted by an appalling score? Overscoring, underscoring, flat-out mismatch scoring, it jars and can totally destroy an otherwise decent film. Of course, the opposite can happen, where a fairly average film can be lifted up to a level it doesn't deserve by a cracking score. Either way, I would say that a fitting score is instrumental, sorry, to a film working or not. Imagine that famous scene in Psycho. Even if you've never seen it, and if not, why not, you must know the famous shower scene. Now picture that in your mind, and instead of Bernard Herrmann's screeching strings, imagine this. doesn't work, does it? We need music, or sometimes the deliberate lack of it, to engage the emotions and heighten what the visuals and dialogue are leading us to feel. So for me, in a film or TV programme that uses music, the score composer is second only to the director in terms of their importance. Even for those who barely know anything about film and TV score, I would hope that most people would know John Williams... Danny Elfman and James Horner. Even if you don't, I'm pretty sure you must know their work. Score composers suffer a bit like classical composers. Everyone knows their famous works, 
but hardly anyone knows what they're called or who wrote them. Listen to the classical music quiz in our Melancholia episode of Spoiler for evidence of that. My three interviewees for this programme are possibly not hugely well-known outside musical circles, although they should be. But in terms of composing, they're all very well established in the film and television industry and offer great insights into composing and the industry. Listen out any budding score composers out there for some valuable advice from all three later on in the show. One of the things that inspired me to put together this composer special was the amazing soundtrack to Room, the Oscar-winning film adaptation of Emma Donoghue's best-selling book, which we reviewed back on episode 17 of Spoiler. For me, Stephen Rennick's score fitted the film perfectly, so I was more than a little surprised when Stephen told me this. I don't think the music in Room is great. <gasps> but it's your music, how can you say that? Well, that's a very interesting one. <laughs> I'll start with this question, why do you not think the music in Room is very good? No, it's not that I don't think it. it, it I think it's. I think it's apt. Actually, apt. I think it works. Yeah, yeah I think, and, yeah. That, and that's and that's the job. You know, that's the mm. job I do. No, absolutely. Um, so, so anyway, I was talking to a guy who I worked with earlier, and Max Max Richter. Anyway, we were talking about Max Richter and saying that in one film he did great music, and in another film, it just seemed really average. Mm. What my friend said, and I said, I know, but the the thing about that is. That's always a product of what he's working on, mm. who he's working with. Yeah. Because as a score composer, you are absolutely a slave to the work you're doing. Mm. And so you have to, if you're given, <laughs> to <laughs> use one of my daughter's phrases, your time to shine, or whatever, yeah. it's different. Yeah. It's a very different thing. So say something like Frank, which I did. That was a incredibly difficult job yeah and it took up a year and a half of my life and I think oh. I had a nervous breakdown oh no <laughs> no no I mean I didn't officially but I, I, I think I did in the yeah. sense that when I look back on it what I was trying to do what we were trying to do with the resources we had and and, and to actually um, achieve what we did achieve which is to make the audience believe that this band making this music is in itself I mean that I think was if you were to call anything a masterwork, that would be my masterwork. Absolutely. Where, um, so, so with with room, the pictures and the story was, were so strong. Yeah. That actually, my personal feeling was always that the music should be much darker. I felt the music really? should really be. Yeah, certainly in the second half, mm. I felt whatever it was at the beginning. You know, when Jack, we are very much seeing it through Jack's eyes, mm. Jack's world, and we're talking about his emotional journey in a way. Once we get outside, I think everything changes. And it did darken, and it, and it did do that. But I felt at the end, we, we, you know, and Lenny knows this, and Ed knows this, and I'm not sure who in A24 might know it, but I felt that the music should have suggested that their lives will not be easy from here. I think there were lots of arguments, you know, like actually in in the sound mix, uh, not not aggressive arguments, but lots of discussion about what you do here with the audience. Do you give them the release there mm. again, having been through this, you know, ragged journey, emotional journey? Do you allow them? Do you give them that moment? Mm. They walk off into the distance, and we joked about, you know, this, if this was, was a typical Lenny film, mm. just as they're about to get into the police car. 
old Mick's car would appear or yeah. disappear Absolutely. and then be whisked left yeah. so, so that we don't know what's going to happen with them. Mm. And it's possibly, I don't know if you know some of Lenny's other films, but yeah. the, the, the ending is always left, not really knowing what's going to happen to this character. And so with Room, I felt that the, certainly the end piece, you know, I felt the end piece should have been much darker. and Lenny and everybody was right because it made the film it was that mm. did so well yeah. and I think that actually if they let me do what I would have done not nearly as many people would really? have seen the film mm. and it wouldn't have been as successful and it wouldn't have won Oscars and it wouldn't have done that yeah, which, maybe is why, so. which I think is why composers aren't let make those decisions So a complicated and characteristically frank answer from Stephen I really didn't expect that I still think the Room soundtrack was great but fascinating to hear his take on it I put the same question to Deborah Lurie. What piece of her work is she most proud of? Well, the first piece of music that came to mind, um, just because it it felt like a real milestone in my life, was um, the first movie I scored for Lassa Hallstrom, which Mm -hmm. was called An Unfinished Life. And the way that I got on that film was kind of not super straightforward. I was sort of doing a replacement score, and it was sort of coming in bits, so I really didn't know if my theme uh, that I wrote for the film was going to be, like, the theme of the whole film, Mm -hmm. or if it was just going to be, like, you know, a main title that showed up a few times. Mm -hmm. And the the closing scene, um, you know, after having worked on you know, mostly low-budget things and mm-hmm. and um, just things of a smaller scope. Suddenly it was like, you know, this helicopter <laughs> shot that was, that was over the most beautiful landscape oh, on wow. the planet with a Morgan Freeman wow. voiceover. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. it, it felt like um, if there was ever sort of a welcome to the movies yeah. <laughs> moment for me, <laughs> that, that was it. Debbie Wiseman is probably best known for her work on the hit series Wolf Hall, directed by Debbie's long-term collaborator Peter Kosminski. But she also spoke enthusiastically of her work on another BBC period drama, Father Brown, starring Mark Williams as the eponymous crime-solving priest. So which would she choose as her favourite piece? It's hard to pick one, to Mm. be honest, that you're most proud of. Yes, I I, I love working on Father Brown. It's It's a real thrill and it's a delightful series. Obviously, Wolf Hall because mm. it had a huge. Um, it was just it had a huge impact, yeah. it was a success, and it was also the first album, soundtrack album of mine ever to go to number one in the classical oh, wow. charts. So that was a particular kind of Fantastic. moment and really exciting. Yeah, so that was lovely, and and you know working with Peter as well is always really really enjoyable. I mm. mean, you know, we've had such a long term collaboration and each time 
time it's slightly different, but we understand the way each other works very well. So that's particularly, you know, always really, really rewarding. Entirely Beloved from Debbie Wiseman's score for Wolf Hall. Something that's always fascinated me is the idea of a vocation, which many creative people profess to have. I flit about from one career idea to another, never really feeling like I found my thing. But is that the case for composers? Here's Deborah Lurie. I always say I conduct, you know, I, I compose and orchestrate and conduct orchestral music because I'm afraid of working a copy machine or a ca- <laughs> cash register. Yeah. You know, I'd be, or answering a phone, I would just be lousy at it. I think that what happens with music is it's so um, all consuming from a very young age. I mean, mm. I started when I was about seven uh, to play the piano, and then that was honestly the only thing I wanted to do. Mm. from the age of about seven. So I didn't have any other possible career path because I knew from a very early age all I wanted to do was be a musician. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it, it was. It was. I mean, it was a complete focus from a very, very young age. So it's hard for me to think of anything else that would have taken its place or, or I would have been able to do, to be honest, because mm. I was never particularly good at anything else. <laughs> um, I'm terrible at painting. <laughs> I'm very bad at cooking, <laughs> really, really, really bad at cooking. Oh ask, ask my husband, who, who, <laughs> who definitely knows about that. Um, not very good at finding my way anywhere or directions <laughs> or, you know, geography, anything like that. So it's hard to really think of anything else that probably I would have been able to do. So I feel quite fortunate that, mm. that, um, it was, that music was there, really, mm. because I, I may well have just been... Um, don't know. Having, having to sing for my supper somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a very good singing voice. <laughs> I think you've been going hungry, bless you. I think I probably would. <laughs> Debbie Wiseman there, and I'm sure her singing voice is lovely. So composing was definitely vocation for Deborah and Debbie, but there's always an exception to prove the rule, and Stephen Rennick's is it. You know, my, my, my background is film. My background is music. Oh, right. So you're a filmmaker. Well, of, well, I wanted to be. Yeah. But, it, but, but it, I grew up in a very musical family, though I didn't know it. They're all musicians. And so mm. I didn't think that what I had was even a skill, right. a saleable skill. So that's why I never set out to be a musician at all. Mm. I studied architecture originally, and then I started making films, and I was being a director and a writer mm. and all that stuff. But I'm very lucky in that way, because I, I was in probably in my late 20s when I realized other people don't have that music mm. the time don't have a constant soundtrack going on when they're yeah. on the road or they do that. And then it became something like, oh, wow, I can actually maybe... I started 20 years ago writing music for people's shorts and then I was directing and, you know, they would do music. You know, there was a kind of co-op in a way. Yeah. And I just, it just went well. I just kept being asked to do stuff and it kept going on. But Fantastic. It was never a decision I made that I want to be, I want to write soundtracks for films. So I'm incredibly lucky to be doing it. Even if you know that you simply must be a composer, how do you get into it? Debbie, Stephen and Deborah each had some great advice. Well, it's not easy mm. to get your first gig. Um, anything in the media is really hard. The best thing to do is to get your music heard because the only way you will get a commission is if somebody hears it and they mm. like it and mm. they say, ah, oh, that sounds interesting. I'm making a television pro- program or I'm making a film and I want something that sounds a little bit like that, which is what, what happened with me. I had a 
showreel. I sent it out to lots of producers, and somebody heard it. And there was a choral piece on 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 one of my showreels, and they were looking for some choral music for their show, and that opened the door for wow. me. So in a way, that's what you've got to do. And it's sort of easier now, even than when I was starting, because there's the internet, and mm. you can allow people to listen to your music very easily, make it very accessible for people. And then you have to be quite proactive, and you have to make sure that you send your music to people so that they can hear it, people that are going to possibly hire you. Nobody advertises for a composer. Mm. Um, There are no job adverts anywhere. So the only way you can actually get a commission is by going after it yourself. And it's very hard. You know, it took Mm. me at least two years before I actually started to get... um, any kind of feedback from anyone and the opportunity to write some music that was commissioned. Mm. So it takes a long time, but you have to be really tenacious and uh, just keep at it, and eventually a door will open and Mm. one thing tends to lead to another. Starting out is, it's really difficult. You know, over here in Ireland, there's now, there's a course you can do, um, and it's a scoring for film course or whatever, and I think it's... I think it's the best. It's certainly more than 20 grand sterling wow. for a year. Yeah, wow, for a year. It's Berkeley accredited, all this kind of stuff. Mm. The problem is, I don't know any producer or director who would give somebody a job based on having a piece of paper which says that they mm. can put music for film. Yeah, absolutely. That's just not how it works. Mm. just isn't how it works. It, it works on your previous experience, what you've done, what mm. you've who you've worked with in the past, and, and, and an ability to del- certainly to deliver a score. But the, re- the real way to do it is to, is to do stuff for free for up-and-coming talent who need to do stuff for free. And that's tough. And I'm talking about people who might be 40 or 45 or something who are going into music. They're going to have to do that unless they have a name, unless they've been in a band who, who, who a director admires. Mm. Even if they've been in a band, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be good at writing music mm. for film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's like most arty or creative um, endeavours when you first start out. There's always an element of having to do stuff for free or doing it very cheaply or just trying to get that experience under your belt. So. There is, but I think there's, I think there's great liberation in it. Mm. It's easy to say, yeah, I mean, you can't pay bills with, with being liberated. But, no. but it is a time when there can be a really good deal struck, which is mm. that you do have a lot of freedom there because somebody not realize, you know, it's very hard in a way for a director to tell you what to do when you're doing it for nothing. My advice is to not listen to that much advice <laughs> or, or to take advice less seriously, basically, yeah. um, because everyone has so many different things to say. And I definitely find that, um, at least in my own path, I, it, you know, when I would really follow my gut feeling, that's when things would go well. Mm. Um, but, you know, from a really practical standpoint, my advice would be um, is to get out into the world as as early as you can. Like, you know, it's tempting to get graduate degrees and all of that kind of thing. And, mm. I, and they're fabulous. But if you really want to be a film composer, like, I think it's great to, to just get out and, and start working before you even feel ready. Mm. Um, and um, to basically decide that you're sort of inventing your own graduate program so that basically you, you take the pressure off yourself yeah. for, like, earning a decent living for as long as graduate school would last. Mm. Um, 
and, you know, and people pay to go to school, you know, mm-hmm. and so, like, if there's some way or they'll get a job in order to be able to afford it or something, and it's just to think of the first few years as being a similar experience, only it's sort of self-imposed, mm-hmm. you know. I think that's really um, empowering. That sounds really empowering. You know, you hear so many people say, having opinions about you should not do paid work or you should do a million unpaid things or whatever. And I'm like, you know, just think of it as something that is um, in a school environment and then suddenly you stop being so sensitive about it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like if, it, if it's for your own education, then you won't start thinking about, you know, like I did all these things that were amazing for my education, but I remember just feeling kind of, quote, screwed over all Mm -hmm. the time, like, oh, they took advantage of me, and and my only regret is thinking that way. I would do those things over again. I just would have been like, yep, I'm learning. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's something else about composers, and it reminds me of my previous career as a wig maker. If they've done their job well, then their work will barely pull focus, It will be an integral part of the storytelling process, but won't stand out and distract, which is exactly what you hope for as a wig maker. You can't want or need plaudits to do your work well. There's no room for ego. There's a lot of people now who want to write soundtracks who are coming from a musical background, either in, you know, contemporary music or in bands or whatever. And it's a really, really tricky thing to do. Mm -hmm. Firstly, because you really have to put aside your ego. Right, yeah. You have, to have a strong ego because you have to be able to fight your corner. Mm. But you all the time have to know that when it comes to it, the director tells you what to do mm. or asks you, if it's a good relationship, they yeah. will ask you, how, how do you achieve this? And you work together with it. Mm. But you have to be able to say, well, if I'm a composer for hire, um, which I think it's a good way to think about it so that you don't get any lofty notions of yourself, mm. then you have to be able to put away how you think the music should be in mm. a way yeah no you can offer it but i don't think you, you certainly can't demand it mm. and i think that's difficult for some people who are coming from being in a band where they were the music creator and it was all about the music just suddenly realizing it's actually all about the image mm. you know all about the image well one of the one of the very important things about a successful collaboration is the willingness of the person the, you know, let's say if it's with an iconic composer and then some a younger person, you know, like me with Danny or whatever, you know, like a newcomer, um, it's their willingness to, to let somebody in, mm. which is really hard. Um, I think all film composers have trouble giving up, mm. you know, just you have to just trust somebody else and, and, and it's not going to be exactly what you want or whatever. But um, so there's that. And then from... From the collaborator standpoint, like as I've worked with a lot of really well-known, iconic people, like Danny Elfman or or Joss Whedon, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's really important. I think the reason why I've I've enjoyed it so much and 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 um, had a great experience with it is that I think I I'm able to sort of check my ego at the door. <laughs> yeah. um, you have to just be in love with the project mm-hmm. and not think about you know, anything else. I think it's just, or or like you can't think of their past work. Like mm. if I was writing additional music for Danny Elfman, I, I couldn't be like, well, what would he do? Right. You know what I mean? It had to be really about, because then you start like doing sort of caricatures or, or like um, 
more shallow, more surface-based ideas. Mm-hmm. And basically to think of everything as being, like, brand new, I think, mm-hmm. is is a big part of it, at least mm-hmm. for me. As Deborah mentioned, she's collaborated with the great Danny Elfman a number of times on additional music, including on Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland. But what exactly is additional music? Well, it's changed. There, you know, there's the what what additional music is in the past, let's say, five to eight years, is really in a way different than it ever was. Because in the past, when there was, let's say, enough time for a composer, enough time, resources, and films were made not digitally, but like on, I guess you would call analog or, you know, Mm. on on actual film. Mm. Um, It was a process where writing a score was really designed for for a single human being to Mm. write this um, soundtrack, you know. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone by, and I would say, I'd say the biggest change to digital is um, now arriving at a final cut for a film is something that can take, it, it can be the most complicated thing in the whole world. You, mm. there, there can be 300 versions of a movie by the time they're through with post-production <laughs> because they're not, they're not snipping film with scissors. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They, yeah. they can just click a few buttons and show. So basically, like, if you're trying to think of what kind of music, for example, should go on something, you can actually test out 500 mm. scenarios if you want. Wow. And and I'm going to try not to sound like an old, cratchety, grouchy person <laughs> about they don't make movies like they used to, but, um, you know, they can test screen three endings. They can, mm. you know, um, get market research to find out what this character should say or not say. Mm. You know, I'm talking about kind of like the really big stuff, you yeah, know, yeah. but like, but those are the gigs where the additional music happens, mm-hmm. like the, the Danny Elfman movies yeah. that I've, you know, it's because they're so big that um, there's so much at stake. And so it's become a lot more understood that in order to chase the changing cut of a film like that, like a tentpole movie like that, mm-hmm. it, it can't be done by one human being. to work on those things but at the same time it it makes like a little indie where they don't have the time or the money to mess with a movie it makes Mm -hmm. it kind of a treat in a way because there isn't this like you know if there's 300 million dollars at stake you know Mm -hmm. they're gonna leave no stone unturned in order to get (laughs) so and and that's why let's say like a show on netflix or something could be so good Mm -hmm. is that there's to some extent, less at stake. So everybody's like a, in a sort of a more creatively free. That trade-off between commercial success and artistic freedom is one which filmmakers often find themselves tussling with. Here's Stephen's take on it. Filmmaking is a combination of art and commerce, mm-hmm. varying degrees. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're making independent film or making low-budget film, the name suggests what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And it means that the artistic side... Is is affected by the by the commerce side, but you you're in a way what you're trying to do, the film becomes a thing about ideas. That's yeah. it. You know, when the budget is low, it's about ideas. When the budget is big, I think it often becomes about the commerce. Which brings us back to Stephen's misgivings about the room soundtrack. 
When the movie was picked up by major US distributor A24, it suddenly became a much higher profile project and he found himself working with a full orchestra for the first time. Surely a dream for any composer, right? That was exciting. It was really nice to work with an orchestra. But I don't think I got the full pleasure that somebody who's from a musical background would get because my initial thing was it's got to, it's got to sound... It's just got to sound the way that I imagine. And it did, it did. But there's a real difficulty in, in, in these days, which I, I did speak to another composer who said, a problem now is that when you play, when you play your demos for producers, you're using samples. And the sample you have is possibly, if it's a good sample, it might be something like the, v, the Viennese Philharmonic or something, mm. where you have, you, you, you press one key on the, on the MIDI keyboard and it triggers 24 lush yeah. violas. <laughs> and you go, it sounds nice, but I'll double that up. So suddenly you've got 48 lush violas. And then you go, yeah, that sounds big, let's, let's make it bigger. <laughs> yeah. okay. So you ne- very soon you have 96 violas mm. and you play that. And that is what the producer gets used to. And then you come to actually recording with the orchestra, mm-hmm. which if it's a big orchestra, it might be 70 or something like that. And, you, and they play and it sounds real and all that kind of stuff. But they're going, yeah, it sounds a bit thin. And yeah. you just realise of course it sounds thin because they're used to listening to 96 violas. Yeah, yeah. A hundred cellos and, you know. So they're the kind of things you learn as you get older with, with what you play, producers. And, the, and and I would be really surprised if I heard a score where it hadn't been augmented by sampled strings as well. That's such a shame. Because it seems to... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the way it is. And yeah. it's really interesting, you know. And often the big thing, the big thing that, that real strings, that, you know, it depends on the line, whether it's a very lyrical line or you need expression, and then you can't really do that. With, although I'm sure there will be a, a program soon where you, mm. where, you, where, you, where you can do that. But what you want to do more than anything else is to add the feeling that this is humans playing this. Yeah. So you want to be able to hear the occasional breath or the occasional mm-hmm. little fluff or the occasional little pull on a string yeah. or something that makes people you know it's, it's really funny how it works and in a way the more perfect it is kind of the less believable it is Like a painter knowing when to stop painting, composers need to know when to stop, but also when to just try for just a little bit longer. Without that, we wouldn't have one of the best songs in Frank, I Love You All. There's a song in Frank, which is the kind of anthem at the end, I Love mm-hmm. You All, yeah. which is what a lot of people remember, that and the ridiculous, most likable song ever. Yeah. Um, but that end song, we were... Prior to shooting that, I think we shot it in, in January, February of, I can't remember what year, I think 2013. Mm-hmm. In 2012, we rehearsed, we had access to those that group of actors for mm-hmm. about two weeks in, in the Christmas prior to that. And then the week before that, I was writing feverishly while writing songs, whatever. And then I had to go into the rehearsal room in Dublin and play it and teach it and whatever. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the th- pretty much, I think on the first week, on the Thursday, we, Lenny and I, we had to decide on what songs were going to be what. And, and this was, now, this is not, this is real time. Everybody's on board. Fassbender's on board. He's mm-hmm. coming in. We've got this. We had two or three days to work with Michael to do this. And there was a song there, but it was, it was okay. It was mm. an okay song. It wasn't whatever. And I just really wasn't happy with it. And mm. I remember 
at about two o'clock on the Thursday night, so the Friday morning, two a.m., just sitting down and and I I was really I was really kind of in trouble in a way, you know, because mm. I I just was not happy, but I didn't know what to do, and I just started playing this thing, and I kind of thought, and all I had to do was play the first two chords, mm. and then I knew where I was going to go from there. And I remember recording it really quickly, and then just dancing around the studio <laughs> by myself at about. But that stage was about four a.m. because I yeah. knew, I knew that this song was going to work well. El Madrid, it's nice to see you. It's really nice to be here. I love you all. Still your fat look, smoked out cowpoke, sequined mountain ladies. I went in the next day and played it, and Carlezar, who's the drummer, who the band were kind of looking to for for uh, validation of whether the music was good or not. She, I played it, and she came over and put her hand out and went, "It's a hit." <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But but the thing about it was that if I'd gone home at twelve o'clock that night, because I had a piece that was okay, mm. "I Love You All" would not exist. Oh. Wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be in the film. And that would be well, it would be a great film, but no. that is such a great it's song. A universe. So the point I'm trying to make is that you have to, with film, you have to have pieces for every cue. Mm. Then you have to, I suppose, go and try and make them as good as you can. But at some stage, there's a cut-off point. And if Mm. you have the great idea, if I'd had the great idea on the Thursday night, and on the Friday night, kind of would have been too late. Yeah. And I couldn't have had it on the Friday night because I'd moved on at that stage. I'd moved on to writing of the other 40 cues or whatever. Mm. Moved on, on, on to those. So with film, the train is leaving and you've got to be on it. Yeah. And that means, you know, you've got to do it what, what you can. Yeah. And I think if I'm applying that rule to Frank, where I'm kind of going, well, I managed to get in before the deadline. I feel myself on room. I I kind of slightly missed the deadline. Wow. I think there was better. I think there was slightly better ideas. Mm. Yeah, and I don't mean radically different. Mm. I just think there's something in that style that we were doing, which is that that delicate, simple kind of thing. That mm. there was something slightly better. But mm. I don't know. You know, I just no. don't know because I stopped. I, I was about to say, did, did you did you play with that, or did you just sort of go, no, no, no got to move on? No, I was so sick of it. I just, <laughs> well, I, I hadn't. I'd been working pretty much nonstop for five years. And I hadn't taken a break. Wow! And I'd gone literally from one film to the next to the mm. next. And even the beginning of Room got pushed slightly forward because what happened was I was working this other film, Viva. It went a little bit late. They were editing on Room, and then suddenly A24 came on board, and mm. there was a very definite finish date. Yeah. So the window suddenly. I had seven weeks to write and deliver all the music for Room. Oh my God, that's a really, really short, quick. A really short time, yeah. And and they booked an orchestra from the very beginning. They Oof. said, we want an orchestra. So there was an orchestra and they were, you know, I was in a very new, unusual position of the producers trying to get me to use as big an orchestra as possible mm. and booking five sessions where I said, no, I think it'll only be three and they go, well, let's book four in case and then <laughs> we went back for another one and, it was, you know, it was a very strange thing. But mm. that's because we had the luxury of knowing this is a really good film. The distributors are really behind it and it's going to get a big push. Yeah. Um, and what, you know, and what comes with that is other things as well, which is that a slight feeling that 
it's no longer independent in the way that we've been working before, mm. you know, that it's suddenly this is going to be pushed for Oscars and and you're then entering that world. And there's stuff, you know, there's things that go with that that I don't think I'm very good at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only imagine. <laughs> that's coded, that's coded language. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very strange world. Yeah. And uh, I, I can understand why a lot of people find it very difficult. Stephen Rennick's there, still agonising over that room soundtrack. As an illustrator, I sometimes struggle to find inspiration to draw, and I wondered if composers also had problems finding new melodies. Stephen appears to have no such trouble. I've got a bag of melodies that I'm dying to use. <laughs> really? <laughs> because they're great. I mean, I have a fantastic James Bond song that Shirley Bassey could sing. Oh, it's wow. a classic, big, like Goldfinger style. Oh, fantastic. Right? And nobody's getting it or nobody's hearing it until I'm asked. Right. <laughs> Damn. And I've been talking to my agent about this and all. He's going, yeah, well, we should really. And I'm going, he said, yeah, but we need to play it first. And I go, well, we'll see. So, <laughs> so th- there's loads of melodies. And, and, and I have constantly music in my head. But even with all those melodies floating around ready to be played, there has to be some influence, some inspiration to get the creative juices flowing. Who inspires our composers? Here's Debbie. I think in terms of film music, probably the music of John Barry, mm. just the sort of effortless beauty of the themes, the way he, he writes sort of soaring, epic themes. It, it feels very natural mm. and effortless, and I, I love that. because I used to listen when I was at music college a lot to Olivier Messiaen, mm. who is a sort of French avant-garde composer. And uh, it sounds absolutely nothing like the music I write. <laughs> it's, it's completely different. But the colours and the way he used sound and the way he, he could paint a picture with the music that he writes was mm. very, very inspiring. I used to go into the woods and drop down birds Charlie Hayden, who mm. played with Miles Davis and various people. And he had, a, he had an album out a few years ago called The Art of Song, I think. And on it, he does a version of Wayfaring Stranger. I've heard it sung by loads of people, but the best person I've ever heard is Charlie Hayden, mm-hmm. not a singer, singing it. 
and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I am a poor wayfaring stranger wandering through this world of woe and there's no sickness toil or danger in that bright world to which I go He's a great musician but he doesn't have the polished voice so his voice is breaking and but really if you get a chance to listen to it it's absolutely beautiful yeah. and, the, and, and the orchestration is all this beautiful orchestration and then his voice comes in mm. and it's fantastic and I think the reason it's so fantastic is because it's imperfect I'm only going over Wayfaring Stranger from the album Art of the Song by Charlie Hayden. One of the most exciting developments in film and TV score of recent years has been the move to live performances. Debbie Wiseman has toured the UK with her music from Wolf Hall and there is always a BBC prom or two, or three, each season that focuses on score. While a good score can enhance and help drive the narrative of a film, a truly great score can stand on its own as a stunning piece of work in its own right. Take this piece... Central Park by James Newton Howard, written for Peter Jackson's 2005 remake of King Kong. just beautiful. So what does the future hold for film and TV score? Who is taking over from the likes of John Williams, James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith? Well, one industry appears to be creating a whole new generation of composers ripe for scoring film and TV for decades to come. The gaming industry. And we've already seen one of that industry's most prolific composers transition with incredible success to writing music for film and TV, Michael Giacchino. From creating music for Medal of Honor and Call of Duty to his Academy Award-winning score for Up, Michael is right up there with the very best composers of film music today. Oddly, it can also go the other way, most notably with Harry Gregson Williams, composer of the music for the Shrek films and Prometheus, among many others, who has now written music for both Metal Gear Solid and Call of Duty. So for all you budding composers out there, I hope you've been galvanised by our amazing interviewees to follow your musical dreams. I look forward to hearing and falling in love with your scores in the years to come and probably going on about them on a future episode of Spoiler. And for those avid film and TV fans who may never have paid particular attention to score before, I hope we've inspired you to really listen to the soundtrack next time you're watching a film or TV show. And if you like what you hear, 
please take the time to find out who wrote it and look out for more music by them. These musical magicians put their passion into love stories, fear into tales of horror, and tears into drama. Listen well and let the music move you. Finally, before we go, just one final attempt to persuade Stephen Rennicks of the merits of that Room score. I was just thinking about Room and how different that would have been in different hands. You know, because I, I, oh, I, I loved the book so much. And when I heard them make yeah. a film, I think my heart actually dropped. I was like, oh, no, they can't make a film. It's going to yeah. be so sensationalist. And they're not going to get the heart of it. And it's going to be terrible. And they're going to get a terrible child actor. And the music's going to be really mawkish. And yeah. I really didn't have very high hopes for it at all. Um, and then I saw that it was um, Lenny that was doing it. I thought, oh, OK, this, this could be different. This could be, you know, because obviously he'd done Frank. And I thought, well, this is this yeah. is a strange move for him but and and then when i saw it i was oh my god this is it this is exactly how i wanted it to be and it, it was so true and authentic and and not at all sort of pandering it didn't seem pandering at all um yeah. and i so said the music i know you you don't like it but <laughs> i i no. think it was i think it was perfect because it was just the, the simplicity of it and and it just it really got me in the heart it wasn't yeah. Like I sort of went, oh, that's a really beautiful melody. It was like it actually got into the heart of me and it made me feel really... And if I listen to it now, it totally conjures up that same feeling again, which to well, me is, is the power of the music, you know. But that is great. I suppose the point I was trying to make was that whether I like it or not doesn't matter. It works. It does. It works. Mm. And that means that the collaborative process of editor, like Nathan Nugent works really closely with Lenny. He's really good. And Lenny and Ed Guiney, the producer, and very few that collaboration works mm. because it means that they're going, look, Steve, you've given us this piece of music. You don't think it's the best one, <laughs> but we're making the decision that it is. Mm. Okay, that's fine. Great. Yeah. And I'm glad. I'm yeah. glad you're doing that because I can't see it. Yeah. But that's okay. It doesn't matter whether I see it or not. And that's also true of a piece that I think is brilliant and perfect. And mm. I have to be able to present that. And they go, it's a beautiful piece of music but not for here. Mm. It doesn't work here because it does this. And then I'm going, I, I can't see that. And they mm. go, well, of course you can't see it because wow. you've written it. You've been too close to the sculpture. What mm. you need to do is stand back at the end of the street and see the big sculpture overall, which, yeah. of course, none of us can do individually because we're too close to it. Mm. But, but, you know, so that, that, that experience of mine of, of uh, not necessarily not thinking that pieces of music are, are, are working. I know they work, you know, mm. I know they work and I know they work in a certain way. Mm. But I think, I think ultimately, I think if I'd had a bit longer, I could have come up with something better. Oh, well, I still think it's perfect. been listening to Spoiler with me, Rachel Burnett. Huge thanks to Deborah Lurie, Debbie Wiseman and Stephen Rennix for taking the time to talk to me and share their insights. 
You can find out more about Spoiler and listen to our past shows at our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Thank you.